Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So I'm going to guess, kind of at random, that a lot of people, the first introduction that they have to the idea of medieval anything, just sort of a time period, is the Disney cartoon The Sword and the Stone. Oh, that would be fantastic. Right? Is that still true? I don't know. Hopefully. I hope so. That'd be awesome. I haven't seen any other <laughs> cartoons about the Middle Ages, um, or even about knights, but... I, now I feel challenged. Yeah. There definitely are some. Yeah. So that itself is There's an actually, adaptation uh, of... It's it E.B. White's... No, T.H. Yeah, White's... Once in Future King. The Once in Future King. The yes. first... <laughs> E.B. White, also amazing. Charlotte's right. Web. But yes. Different writers. <laughs> <Yorker>, etc. Yes. <laughs> Were they related? I don't know. I do not think so, Okay. No. So, Very different styles. Yes. Also of writing, which has nothing to do with being related or not, which they were not, um, I believe. But, um, so, yes. T.H. White wrote this book, The Sword and the Stone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, The Once in Future the King. The Once in Future yeah. King. The Sword and the Stone is the first yeah. part of it. Based on yes. the Arthurian legends, which yes. sort of, I say that very generally, this is a huge group yes. of legends that go way back. Yes. So today we're going to talk more about knights and chivalry. And then we're going to talk about King Arthur. Because yes. he's awesome. Um, yeah. Yes, it is worth pointing out that there are there are a few more recent cartoons, I think, of knights and the Middle Ages and so on. There's a sort of satiric one that might be called something like Enchantment. With... Um, that's a little Futurama-like. Anyway. <laughs> um, but... Yes, right. So you either get the ideal of chivalry, or you get the satire of it. <laughs> but yes, people tend to learn about it very early on, Knights mm -hmm. in Shining Armor, when you're kids. Um, I think we mentioned this a little bit last time, right? That that and that ideal sort of stays with us, right? Mm -hmm. um, My four-year-old is we talked already a lot about very aware of knights and swords oh, and wow. helmets and all of this okay. fighting. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> um, yeah, so there are a couple things, actually, about the Once and Future King that we will break down today. Um, one of them is the title, The Once and Future King, of course, is a reminder of the ways in which Arthurian legend becomes deeply infused with Christianity. Ah, uh, yes. The suggestion um, that he might that, be coming back. Yes. Um, and he's sort of buried in a cave. Similar, and he will resurrect. I mean, there are a lot of weird similarities. There obviously are a lot of differences, but <laughs> but also the similarities aren't weird um, so much as purposeful. And it also, when I said infused, that isn't necessarily accurate, because we, we talked a few episodes ago about um, the fact that Beowulf, for example, is, of course, a pre-Christian legend that is being written down and told by a Christian author. Mm -hmm who recognizes that this is pre-Christian, but of course, and sees a lot of parallels with sort of his own, we're assuming the author was male, uh, Christian viewpoint. Um, Arthur, it's a little unclear that this 
that any of Arthur's legends ever really existed without Christianity, that that is not necessarily true at all, right? right. Arthur really is um, a legend that arises when Christianity has already absolutely overtaken the British Isles. Um, so although there are lots of elements, of course, that are not Christian, because obviously it borrows a lot of stuff that had been around for a long time, and you can parallel it to Celtic and pagan legends um, that continue to exist, Arthur really is deeply intertwined with Christianity. So it's not that Christianity was later sort of infused into it. It's it's really part of it. <laughs> um, so that's number one. We're going to talk more about Christianity and chivalry, which we touched on a little bit last time, right? Like in the sort of ceremonies. Yeah. Um, or the idea that knights, right, when you became a knight, so the sort of rituals to become a knight, but also even just the idea that knights were supposed to defend Christianity, mm -hmm. right? And sort of the crusades and things like that. Um, so, so that. Um, and then, of course, yeah, the next part of Arthur, um, there are a lot of things in this that we'll talk about. Um, romance. Romance will get its own episode as well in the future. <laughs> and by romance, I mean the genre with a capital R. So not just like love, but the capital R romance. Yeah. What is, um, but I remember that's like a literary word yes. and it doesn't just mean a book about two people falling in love and or stopping. Right. As it currently kind right. of does. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So, um, a romance, um, okay, so there are a few things, of course. Yeah, a modern, when we say a modern romance novel, of course, we actually frequently mean the ones with, like, pictures of men on the front with flowing hair or something. Yes. Right? Like, a modern romance novel is seen as, first of all, a genre particularly for women, and one that is very much about love and that has frequently be been kind of degraded or mm -hmm. looked down on, condescended to, um, but actually tends to be very much about sort of female empowerment frequently. What's well, funny, as somebody who sort of works around the book space, romance novels sell super well. Like, it's a huge market. Yes. So, yes. You know, there's <laughs> a lot of women yeah. are laughing all the way to the bank on that one. Yes. Absolutely. And um, the, you know, it's a lot like um, soap operas, basically. Right? Soap operas are a similar genre. I mean, they're the TV version in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and they similarly tend to be looked down upon, tend to be seen as for female viewers. Um, but also people have been writing a lot in the past few decades about the ways in which they do similar things, like sort of talk about issues that women have with the world and female empowerment and finding yourself and, you know, reclaiming your sexuality and all of these things. Um, yeah. So that's where we sort of think of today. Um, and really a romance, I mean, originally it really meant a story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so the idea of um, romance really does appear, right? Chivalric romances, it, they were these sort of epic stories, mm -hmm. really, is what it meant originally. Um, but we part of it is love. So we are going to talk about sort of chivalric or courtly love a little bit. We'll talk about it probably again when we talk about romance. But um, And so basically the word romance 
becomes equated to specifically that aspect of the story, right? Um, it, and that's just sort of how things evolve throughout history. So then you sort of get, um, particularly because you get things like uh, a sort of resurrection of this with things, uh, Sir Walter Scott, for example, mm -hmm. right? Something that Ivanhoe, um, <laughs> where you have, I would say, <laughs> um, most people who know the stories of the Arthur and the Knights and the Round Tables, as you, as you said, right, get it from either things like Disney when they're kids, mm -hmm. or from something like The Ones in Future King. Mm -hmm. Or, you um, know, Monty Python. Yes. Also, yes, speaking of the satires. Yeah. yeah. Holy Grail. <laughs> um, but you don't, you probably, very few people, I mean, this isn't fair either. I should restate this. As a medievalist, I should restate this. Um, not as many people, frequently, very sadly and unfortunately, <laughs> have read what we might call the slightly more original versions of things, mm -hmm. which is to say the versions of stuff that were written in the Middle Ages. So we're going back I, I, beyond, like, Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur. Yes. We're going back to, like, right. the prose Merlin era. Right. But even Mallory, I mean, even Mallory, mm -hmm. right? All of those are a lot more interesting frequently than they come down to us later, right? So when we think of them, we somehow assume that they're going to be like Ivanhoe, mm -hmm. even if we've never read Sir Walter <laughs> Scott, even if we've never read Tennyson, right. right? Idols of the King, whatever, right? We know that. We've seen the pre-Raphaelite paintings. Yeah. These right. moody <laughs> women with tomato soup colored hair, like, yes. sighing a lot. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and the famous, you know, Elaine and Lancelot and all of this stuff. Um, so, yeah, right. There is absolutely this way in which um, that is what we then know. And I think people do frequently have to read some of that in school these days still. Right. So... Um, you may have written, written, you may have <laughs> read or, you know, also written like some high school essays on some of these things. Um, and there's this assumption somehow that that is what these ancient chivalries, and by ancient, of course, I mean medieval, um, are like. When in fact, that is, of course, the version that we get in the 17 and the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, um, that's, that really is then what leads us into romance, because those frequently do concentrate on the romance, which is the love part. Right. <laughs> right. Um, that being said, courtly love and chivalric romance were important parts of these stories. There's a reason that romance becomes attached to it, right? Um, but, you know, originally you get titles like um, the Roman de la Rose, right? Which is this, this tale of the rose, right? It's the story of the rose. It has nothing to do with... I mean, I'm not saying it has nothing to do with love. Of course it does. It's Rose, and it's about, like, the thorns and stuff. But, you know, um, <laughs> it's not a romance necessarily the way we would consider it a modern romance, right? Um, so we take a lot of the terminology, we take a lot of imagery, but frequently the older texts are far more interesting than the modern text. They can also be much more complicated in the sense that chivalry is very shiny. Right? If you read Tennyson, um, it's not that it isn't complex. It's still complex. It's amazing. Right? Um, you know, The Lady of Shalott is a fantastic poem. But 
um, there's a lot more sense of this as a fantasy, right? And something about the medieval texts, no matter how fantastical some of the elements may be, which is to say they don't, it's not, they're realistic, but there's a lot more, you know, of what at the time is going on, sort of contemporaneous politics and war. And you have a sense of what knights really are and what they do. All the things we talked about last time, right? Um, how much armor they have to wear, what their horses are actually like, and what you can really do in the certain situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is this way in which um, I think it it's important to sort of recognize the, some of the differences, right? Um, so The Once and Future King is a wonderful story, but it is definitely suitable for at least some age of children. Oh, sure. I don't know. Like, tweens, at mm-hmm. least. In a way that arguably a lot of the older texts are not necessarily. Right? Um, because sort of obvious reasons, right? right? We we come to think of these things as being suitable for children, right? These stories of knights in shining armor. The originals are not necessarily supposed to be that at all. So that is definitely important. Um, <laughs> and this, of course, brings us to one of the main points of Arthur. Not one of the main points, but certainly when it talks about romance. One of the really complicated points about Arthur's story is that courtly romance is not an ideal that is upheld in those stories mm-hmm. in certain very important moments. Looking at Lancelot there. Ah, yes. Right. You don't steal your boss's wife, maybe? Yes. Is an ideal. That's one of those <laughs> really key things you don't do. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so to give a quick rundown, we talked some about this last time, but just a couple more sources. Um, so Ramon of Lul, I think, I don't know if we actually managed to mention him last time, but he's around 1232 to kind of 13, 15, or 16. How he dies is a little unclear. There are a lot of rumors. We're going to skip him. Um, but anyway, he writes in Catalan. He's Majorcan. Um, and he writes a book called The Order of Chivalry in Catalan. It's got a new translation out okay. by Noel Fellows. Um, and he really wanted to codify the rule of chivalry. So we're talking, right, the 1200s. Um, it's, it's been going on. Right? You've had knights for a while now, of course. Sure. We talked about the Bayou Tapestry a while ago. Um, knights are happening. You have armor. You have layers of armor. You have chainmail. Right? You have war horses. So you, you have all this stuff. Um, and the military side of it is pretty clear. <laughs> um, and as we talked about last time, the problem is you have all these armed men roaming around. They definitely need some uh, specific rules that they should be adhering to. Because otherwise you got trouble, right? So um, one of the, so some of the things that were sort of codified in this book um, to defend Christianity, to defend the temporal ruler of your lands. So it might be a king or a prince or a duke or whoever. Um, protect the weak, women, widows, and orphans. Um, again, key, right? You don't get to pillage and take stuff from people. You're supposed to be protecting them. Um, hunting. This is a big one, right? Because hunting helps you practice prowess in battle, basically, right? Sure. Um, it's a lot of, like, riding and, um... Yeah, and shooting. Shooting, right. <laughs> arrows, of course. Yeah, arrows but, yeah, from you get to practice your aim and pretty difficult. Yeah. So you're practicing all that stuff. You're practicing tracking, you're practicing just, you know, wearing all this stuff for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Um, he also thought... 
that kings should choose their bailiffs and secular officers from knights. So knights should be made essentially part of the government bureaucracy. Hmm. Right? It gives you a stake in what's happening, basically. <laughs> um, you're more willing to protect stuff if you're the one who's kind of in charge of it. Right? Makes sense. Yeah, supposed to pursue robbers. So remember, you don't really have a an official police force. Um, right. There's no such thing as like the FBI, who's got cross jurisdiction or whatever. <laughs> so somebody's got to do this, or nobody will. Um, so knights, right? Pursue robbers. Um, practice wisdom, charity, loyalty, courage. Honor before all. No pride. False swearing. Right. So no, like giving an oath and then going back on it by fighting for someone else. Mm. But also all kinds of false swearing, you know. Um, idleness, lechery, or treason. This is a big one, obviously. Um, jousting in tournaments. We're going to come back to that. That's another form of practice, of course, for war. Um, and sort of his ultimate quote here um, is that some of the ultimate treasons were to slay your lord, to lie with his wife, or to surrender his castle. Oh, boy. Yes. Um, and of course, this is one of the great things about the Arthurian legends, is that they are not ideal. Lancelot is an incredible figure, particularly because he clearly breaks one of these three, you know, no-go rules, right. basically. He crosses one of those lines. And arguably, the kingdom sort of falls because of it. They all know it's going to happen, and they cannot stop it. Right. Um, that's an amazing part of that story. Um, it's not, you know, and it's, yeah, it's explicit. It's discussed. It's, of course, something that did occasionally happen. <laughs> um, yeah, well, they wouldn't have made a rule not, about it if, if it didn't. Right. Right. Obviously. Right. Um, but it also, of course, is not the sort of thing you get, you know, in something like the Lady of Shalott, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it's um, something I've been thinking about recently is the extent to which, you know, the past few hundred years did frequently edit out the parts of the past they didn't like, the parts that they found immoral or improper. This is another thing we've just sort of discussed having an episode yeah. on. Um, and yeah, Lancelot and Guinevere's adultery is absolutely one of those things. Um. And actually, a sort of shout-out that we'll talk more in a sec, but the movie of the Green Knight that just came out, um, it's worth pointing out that we do not get a hint of that in this movie, which is interesting. Um, which, and it's not necessarily required. I mean, that's not part of this original poem either. But you do see a lot of stuff in this movie that's not necessarily in the original poem. That is not one of the things, right? Um, so it's weird for a movie that kind of seems to want to show you more and be more gritty... They kind of skip that adultery part. Hmm. <laughs> well, we um, should, which is interesting. We're Why? doing a whole episode on the Green Knight in the future, right? So yes, we'll save yes. that. Um, yes, yeah, and we'll do more specifically about Arthur and some of the plots, right? So this is really just about how he fits into romance yeah. um, and chivalry, actually, specifically to chivalric romance. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes the answer is that he he doesn't quite right. Um, this is, of course, the other thing: the sword and the stone, helpfully you know, stays with him as a kid. Right? You don't get to the point where 
Right. His wife is sleeping with Lancelot. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, the stone. The, it's the fun part, right? Because yeah. you've got Merlin. Yes. You've got the whole yes. pulling the sword from the stone, and, you know, he kind of does yeah. it by accident when he's trying to help his brother. Um, yes. It's yes. so much more entertaining, especially packages children's entertainment, but... If you happen to be yeah. like, you know, be like me and you like the wizard's characters, like when it moves yes. on to the part where Merlin goes away and it's just like people fighting with swords. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, of course, Merlin himself is ultimately, um, you know, seduced and imprisoned by a woman. Yes. The main villain, actually, of the Arthurian legends is a woman, famously Morgan Le Fay. Right. Who is his sister, basically. Half sister. Yes, that is an interesting. So, um, yeah, yes. thing. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So there, right? There are a lot of these really interesting aspects to those to those stories. Um, all right. So, um, one of the things about chivalric romance, of course, is that you're supposed to not be telling people. This is what we say, right? Don't kiss and tell, or you know. Lady never tells, or a gentleman never tells. Mm -hmm. Well, that's chivalric romance, actually. That's the courtly love. That's one of the points, is you're not supposed to tell who your love is, right? So the lady, like, ties a ribbon around her knight's lance before he goes to joust in a tournament. Mm -hmm. And he knows who tied it, and she knows he's wearing it because she can see it. But nobody knows, you know, nobody watching the knight knows which lady tied that ribbon. Uh Um. And that's sort of supposed to be the point, that it's, like, secret. And, you know, the more prizes he wins in battle or in a tournament, everyone's like, oh, his lady must be so proud that he's doing all this for her. But nobody knows who that lady is, uh-huh. right? Yeah. <laughs> this is sort of supposed to be the point. Um, and, I mean, it clearly is in a lot, a lot of reasons for it in a practical sense is because you pro- you're not married, Right. <laughs> and maybe you can't be married because you're married to other people. Right. So the problem with the Guinevere Lancelot situation is that they are, in fact, having a lot of actual sex. Right. So because That's traditionally <laughs> it was just lances and fans and sighing sort of. Well, that's the theory. In- <laughs> right. In the reality, of course, they're sleeping together. Right. The same way Guinevere and Lancelot are, right? But theoretically, you weren't. There has to be an element of plausible deniability, perhaps? Yes. That you could be like, no, they're just friends. Right. Well, she honors him and he honors her, but... Yes, but if, but this is why, right, we do have this weird... um, And this is, of course, something that's still around, Mm -hmm. Right. This idea that, um, you know, that somehow if you're not actually sleeping together, then then things are OK. Right. So two people can fall in love. Right. But as long as they're not, we're like, oh, it's so romantic, but they did not actually sleep together. You know, mm-hmm. right. There's this weird and we we yeah, we still have this. It sort of hasn't changed. And on some level, it's always a form of plausible deniability, of course. Today, we the weird thing is that we still have it, even though arguably we don't really need it, because you can just get divorced and remarry. <laughs> right. Um, but back then, of course, when that was much harder, you could not really do that. 
right? I mean, marriage, especially if you're upper class, is political. Mm-hmm. So you can't just be rearranging it unless politics realign, in which case you might be forced to rearrange it. And this is another problem. Um, the mo- One of the other most famous couples out of Arthur, um, Tristan and Isolde. Ah, uh, yeah. They got their own opera. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, a lot of, you know, Wagner loved all this stuff, so he did a lot. But, um, yeah, so in that case, Tristan is sent, the theory is, right, um, he's sent along as a um, emissary or whatever, and she sees him and falls in love with him, not realizing that he's not the guy she's supposed to marry. Right. <laughs> um, and so then, there we are. Right. So that's another case in which, again, like, yes, there is adultery. Absolutely. Because they are the couple. And we, that that's a little bit different, though, because we do not like um, her husband. Whereas Arthur, right, King Arthur is, we generally speaking, like, in the sense that we don't want his kingdom to fall. Right. <laughs> because his best friend is sleeping with his wife. Um or also his wife is sleeping with his best friend. I mean, Guinevere is uh, not a passive player in it by any means, but the three of them are all so important um, that we, we do feel for that situation. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Tristan sold situation, like, we think that they belong together. Right. So that's a, that's a little bit different in that case. But still somewhat, right? So a lot of this, the problem is always that the ideal, real people don't live up to the ideal, even in stories, right? <laughs> so even in the stories. Um. Okay, so I do want to bring up a few things here that we have tournaments. All right, this is where you go to practice and also to win reputation, right? For your lady, you want her to see you do this. You want to win honors for her also to be noticed, right? In real life, um, you want to be noticed, particularly if you're not wealthy, right? Because if you are really good at a tournament you'll probably be really good in battle Mm -hmm. um and some lord who can afford to hire you will notice how good you are and hire you to you know go fight actual battles for him um and he'll give you a horse right he'll equip you basically so So he'll give you the horse this is like the medieval version of everybody trying to go uh viral on tiktok right so that then they can get Whatever yeah. sponsorships yeah. and quit mm-hmm. quit their job or and make Broadway auditions time or something. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. Today it's like TikTok and YouTube, um, but it could also be sort of the big Broadway auditions, mm-hmm. or if you're trying to get into grad school, like the Erda auditions. Yeah, you know, I do theater, so this is what I know. But yes, everyone has a version of this, right? All job fairs. Yes. Our, our version of this. But we are really talking about performance. I mean, auditions for Juilliard or whatever, right? Um, yeah, this is what we're talking about. <laughs> um, and if you're noticed, then you're in. Um, and so tournaments um, evolve over time, of course. Um, they start out really as practice battles, right? So you have a bunch of people on either side. And eventually we get around to the idea that they are more commonly what we think of today, which is just the two knights running at each other. Um, But that is never the only form of jousting or tournament. And it takes a while to get to that point. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons um, is this requires specific technology. So stirrups come in um, and by the year 
1,000. You have stirrups that are sturdy enough that you can hold a lance, which is, you know, a big spear, basically, mm-hmm. in what we might call a, well, what is called a couched position. Okay. Meaning where the hilt kind of part is like under your armpit. Yeah. Okay. So it's braced against you, right? The hilt, you know, the sort of hilt part is like under your armpit, like braced against, and you run at the other person. I mean, the horse runs, you gallop, you gallop at the other person, and you smash against each other, hopefully, and you unhorse each other or whatever. Um, and of course, this, you can only do this if you are, if your stirrups are so good that you won't get shot backward out of your saddle. When you crash into someone else, yes, with a lance pressed against you, right? That would be... <laughs> it's like recoil from a gun. <laughs> that would be bad. Yes, yeah. So this is technology. Um, this is, of course, what we think of when we think of knights jousting. I mean, that's the only thing we ever see. I would. I mean, basically, right? But um, the Bayou Tapestry, which we have discussed a lot, of course, um, has imagery of knights doing all sorts of things. Um, it is made at the end of the 10 hundreds, right? Um, and we actually do see knights holding spears to throw. Ooh. Sort of overhead, like a javelin thrower. Okay. Right? Um, so sort of to throw like that, we see them holding them sort of um, to thrust. And we do also see them being couched. So we know that that was possible at that time, that you could do that. So would all of these um, have been, like, com- ways of competing against other knights, like, fighting? Like, you'd throw your spear at somebody, or is it more like who could throw it the mm-hmm. farthest? Like, like javelin, or Both like of these a, things. What do you call it? Tossing the caber. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you're in a tournament... It could be either of these things. It could be like a javelin throw, and it could also be, you know, a real fight. You're throwing them at each other. Um, Because, like... This is the difference... Oh, because, like, the javelin version feels like the one that's going to get you the most living knights on the other side of the tournament, as opposed to throwing long wooden spears at one another does not necessarily (laughs) feel, like, well safe. Even though they're wearing helmets? Yes. Like... So, yeah, hang on here. Um, this is a really interesting um, problem. Uh, tournaments. Yes. How many people actually were alive? So, let's see here. This is from Keen, Maurice Keen, Chivalry. He literally wrote the book. Others have written more since, but there we are. Um, and he has this to say. Um, which is, let's see, um, the 13th century's, this is page 87, so the 13th century's tale of fatal tourneying casualties is a long and melancholy one. (laughs) The names of the very great figure, of the very great figure prominently among them, right? So we're talking like, this isn't one of those instances where you're super rich and so your daddy gets you into the whatever guard, (laughs) We're talking like you're the prince, and so you better be out there fighting, and you might get killed. Okay. Um, so here we go. Let's see. All right. So Geoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Essex, was trampled to death at a tournament in 1216. 
uh, Florence Count of Holland killed turning in 1223. His son perished the same way in 1234, as did his brother in 1238. Oh my goodness. In Bad yeah. decade. In, yeah. That family clearly, yep. Should have stopped going, but there you are. Um, all right, in 1279, um, Robert of Clermont, the brother of Philip III of France, that's the brother of the king, mm. right? <laughs> um, sustained in his very first tournament head injuries, which left him largely incapacitated for the rest of his life. <laughs> okay. So there. Um, that's just a quick rundown of a few people. Um, supposedly, other th- big events that were terrible were things like at a um, there was one tournament in 1241 where supposedly over 80 knights are said to have died. Um, maybe actually in this case, because of the dust and heat, they actually suffocated in their armor. Ooh. Um, you'd be sort of cooked to death, right? In the metal. Like a base potato. I mean, heat, heat exhaustion. Right. Oh, right. yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's like football practices today. I think for the first time ever, they, somewhere, which I forget where, but um, indicted a coach. Wow. Uh, for, I think, a young woman who died a couple years ago. Okay. Um, for heat exhaustion. Real Sports has done a number of episodes on this where there's um, one guy in particular, but a number of doctors who are really outspoken. And they're like, every high school sports team should be required to have an ice bath anytime you're doing things outside in the heat. Mm-hmm. Because it would save, you wouldn't have, people wouldn't die. Yeah. You'd save all those lives. Um. But yeah, so heat exhaustion. Um, yeah, so um, sometimes <laughs> there are suspicions of foul play. We're back to the tournaments, okay? Um, which is to say that the sort of question would someone, if you knew that one of your enemies was going to be at this tournament, would you take the opportunity instead of engaging them in a quote unquote real battle to send some people there to that you knew could probably beat them? Not only beat them, but you know, kill them, essentially. Um, so there were definitely suspicions of foul play. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> one of the interesting things about this is that the church really, really condemned tournaments. Sure. Um, so Innocent II in 1130. Um, and then that's a, that's a Council of Clermont. It's not the big one, but he did one. Um, and then again... Um, in, at second, the second Lateran Council, still Innocent II, 1139, um, he decreed that people who die, knights who die in tournaments shouldn't be given Christian burial. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's in 1130. Um, and then I think, I mean, hmm? this is sort of similar to like committing suicide in a sense. Yeah. That's how angry the church was about this. Wow. Right. Yeah. And obviously, there are a few obvious reasons. One is that it's, they saw it as pointless. Mm-hmm. You're not fighting for anything except pride and glory. I remember pride and also being probably one of those money. things <laughs> that they're not a big fan of. From, yes. Uh, yes, indeed. So down in Inferno. <laughs> yes, pride. Um, and, and greed, honestly, mm-hmm. is the other reason you might be fighting. Because for everybody that you unhorse or take or whatever, you theoretically will get a ransom. Hmm. Certainly for a lot of people, you get a ransom. Same way you do in battle. Okay. Um, or you might win, you know, win money for having, you know, or be rewarded by whoever for having done so well. So there's definitely, yeah, greed and pride. 
Um, so the church is against this. Also, of course, it's a waste. All these people expending all this money and time and energy when they could be fighting for Christianity. <laughs> right? Um, sure. Kings, kings and nobles and other people who had to raise their own armies, which was everybody had to raise their own army. Their point was that without these things, you didn't get enough experience to be able to go fight a war. But the church was kind of like, but what's the difference? If you're going to die in a tournament, you might as well go die in an actual battle. And if you don't die, you will have also gotten the experience. Right? <laughs> right? Tournaments weren't necessarily a safer alternative. Right. This is the problem. Um, some kings also saw it as a big waste. So it is really, so it's not just the church. Um, although the church really condemned it. But um, Keane says that John the 22nd actually finally lifted the ban in 1316 because it made zero difference. Mm -hmm. Right? It did not stop anything. Um, however, um, Henry II, this is England, right? This is our man. Speaking of Arthur, I mean, Eleanor of Aquitaine, his wife, right, brings in a ton of sort of poetry and music and chivalric romance, all this stuff, right? Um, but he actually outlaws tournaments. Oh. Sort of for this, right? He does not want people in his kingdom doing this. His son, Richard the First, also known as the Lionheart, who famously loved nothing more than to charge at people, um, changed that. He was like, you know, we gotta train for war, which was his thing that he did, right? Did he fight a crusade um, also? Yep. Okay. Um, and also may have been gay. He probably wouldn't have defined himself, you know, modern it's terminology. Implied in Enjoyed the sleeping with men. So I believe yes. it's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But also there's definitely some historical, uh, evidence hmm. that, that okay. that was his preferred sexuality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, neither here nor there. He, <laughs> when it comes to tournaments, right. he, he just, you know, he, this is what he loved to do. He wanted to fight people. Um, and so, you know, he did die young, uh, and John took over. Anyway, um, so here we, we have Magna right Carta, this sort right? of so problem. It's not all bad. Yeah, yeah. One of the sort of beginnings of the founding documents of what eventually kind of leads to democracy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but yeah, so the idea is right. You're winning reputation, money via ransom, rank and social class. Um, eventually. There are attempts to put a little bit of restraint around this. So the idea that you're not supposed to kill people, theoretically you don't want to because you want the money for ransom, but also we start to get to a point where you're not really supposed to be killing people. Um, and eventually to the point that um, only people of certain classes get let in to fight in the first place, right? So there becomes an attempt to really... Um, delineate the social rank and class of knights to make sure that only knights who are of great social rank and class get into tournaments. Um, and then, you know, so both of these things start to happen as okay. we move through, right? Um, that you aren't maybe supposed to be killing people as much and also that um, they're supposed to be seen as very superior affairs. Um, and we get, of course, the growth of heraldry, right? Heraldry is ancestral but eventually it will be true that knights who were not, this is of course the thing that happens. It's the idea is that knights are only supposed to be people who have access to heraldry. But what does end up happening, of course, eventually is that people who become knights are given access to heraldry. You're allowed to have a coat of arms, right? Sure. So, because ultimately the problem is you do always need people who will fight. 
right? You, you just do. And they're even, no matter how courageous your nobles are and how willing to give up their lives, um, there are never going to be enough of them to fill out the ranks mm-hmm. of knighthood. Um, and so ultimately you do need other people who are willing to do it. And they're probably going to be less willing if you're not going to allow them into things like tournaments and whatnot. So eventually the rank of knighthood, you do get access to code of arms. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but there, but this becomes again, right? It, there's always aspects of social class and attempts to regulate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we talked a little bit last time about people like Sir John Hawkwood, who mostly fights in Italy. Florence, he really, he leads Florence very well. They're, they like him and they bury him under a big monument um, when he dies. And, um, you know, his reputation was certainly that of a mercenary, which was supposed to be sort of lower than a knight, right? That he doesn't follow chivalric rules. But he was tremendous fighter, <laughs> and certainly honored as a tremendous fighter. Yeah. But definitely did not exactly follow chivalric. You know, he was a mercenary in that sense. Like, he's a professional soldier. Mm-hmm. But of course, most knights were. Right? So again, we come back to this paradox. Um, all right, so that's sort of tournaments. Um, it should be mentioned that you weren't necessarily supposed to even <laughs> kill each other. Like, knights weren't supposed to necessarily kill each other even in battle. Um, and of course... The better armor gets, the less likely it is that knights are going to kill each other in battle. Which frequently ends up meaning that the people who get killed in battles are the people who are not knights. Which is to say the foot soldiers, the unarmed, sometimes the non-combatants. So battles can be pretty horrific for people who aren't knights. Sometimes horrific for people who are as well, of course. Um, But generally speaking, you're supposed to kind of... You know, ransom. It's supposed to be for ransom. That being said, there are a lot of um, examples, including back to England and the Henrys, uh, Henry V at Agincourt. Right. Um, he thought there was another wave coming. And so he ordered pretty much everyone except the very highest ranking prisoners killed, famously. Um, and it's one of those things that he was clearly problematic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is one of the things that gives him a little bit of a dent, even in Shakespeare's play, Um, but was kind of understood by the logic of the time, that you were supposed to ransom knights, but sometimes in a real battle, you didn't feel you could. Right. Right? Because you, if you didn't, if you weren't secure enough in your victory, then you might, in fact, kill them instead of ransoming them. Um, and there were some time, there were some people who were known sort of not to ransom knights at all, right? That they were sort of known that they didn't give quarter, as the saying goes. Um, so yeah, right, so you have the realities always against the chivalric ideal, mm-hmm. basically. Um, alrighty, so, <laughs> um, all that being said, there is this really, really important sense of um, there is the ideal of knights as people who do battle who go on quests to foreign places probably to battle (laughs) Um, go on tournaments in foreign places right so you aren't just knights English knights aren't just doing tournaments in England they're Mm -hmm. also going across the seas to other tournaments right you want an international reputation sure if you can have one like the Um, the tennis tournament circuit, right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and the thing is that what if um, your co- your country is like, well, we don't really need you anymore. Thanks. Bye. Some other lord somewhere else is going to be like, oh, we'll take you. Yeah. <laughs> Come work for me. Right. Um, it's worth pointing out Chaucer's knight um, has famously he's fought like everywhere but England. And, you know, France, basically. He basically hasn't ever fought for England, but he's fought everywhere else. Um, he fights, he's not always fighting even for Christian rulers. He fights for everybody. Um, he is essentially a mercenary, but also at the rank of knight. You know, but this is how he makes his living. And he's yeah. been off doing things. He's been in some questionable places, for sure. <laughs> and probably done some questionable things. He has actually killed people in tournaments, which, as we know, you weren't really supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. But it happened. Um... So he is, he is clearly a professional soldier. Uh, and in the Canterbury Tales, he's come home with his son, Squire, to, you know, kind of see what's what, get his son kind of, you know, <laughs> back acclimated in England, you know, stuff like this. Um, the sort of funny thing, I mean, it's a satire, it's always a satire, right? So Chaucer's satirizing the ideals of knighthood through our knight. Um, but then the, his knight tells a tale. That is that is supposed to be a chivalric romance. That of course Chaucer is taking a few digs through it. Chaucer, what? Yes, I know. I know. Um, but the chivalric, <laughs> the chivalric romance that the knight tells is actually, um, it's, it's well. So it centers on these two friends, right, uh, Palamon and Arasite, um, and they're they're taken prisoner, um, and they see. They're taken prisoner by Theseus. This is, I don't know, it's weird because <laughs> it it's, you know, medieval, but it's classical. Who knows? Anyway, um, but anyway, so they're taken prisoner um, and they see, you know, this young woman from the tower. They both fall in love with her. They're like, I saw her first. No, I saw her first. Um, and so then one of them escapes, but then... Um, and one of them is sort of let out if he exiles. Like, you know, he just can never come back. But he's like, I have to go back because, you know, I can't be out of the sight of, interestingly, her name is Emily. What? Ta-da. Really? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's spelled more fancy, but yeah. Um, I didn't, it's like E-Y-E or whatever. didn't realize it went all yeah, that way Emily. back. Yep. Um, and so he goes back and runs into his friend who's escaped and they're, like, fighting over this girl who doesn't even know they exist, because, of course, they were, like, locked away in a tower when they saw her. <laughs> um, and, you know, they're found in the woods fighting, and the king is like, um, you know, you both seem pretty honorable. Like, I guess you could fight over her? And they're like, yes, we will fight over her. We'll have a tournament. Um, and whoever wins it gets her. Um, and so that night, um, Arasite prays to Mars to win. And Palamon plays praise to Venus mm. that he will marry the girl, Emily. Um, so the next day, or, you know, I guess the next day. Anyway, um, they each have, it's it's really a battle. So it's not a joust where they just run at each other. It's a battle. So they each have sides, right? Um, and it's kind of like capture the flag, I guess. Not exactly. There's another game that it's more like, but... Um, Essentially, right, you both have sides, and if you're captured and, like, dragged over to kind of home plate, then you're out of it. The king decides, we're not going to kill anybody. Um, 
this is going to be a fair fight or, you know, no death because this is for romance. So we don't want anybody to die. Um, and here you see right where the idea of chivalric romance as love, but also with Chaucer kind of underneath making fun a little bit of what this ideal of love mm-hmm. is, right? Um, it's not just that they're not sleeping together. This girl doesn't know who they are. Um, so anyway, so <laughs> no one's going to die, but when you're taken out of the battle, then you have to stay out. And if either of the, you know, if either Aristide or Palamon gets taken out, then their side loses. Okay. Right. So if the leader gets taken, then that side loses. Okay. So, um, Emily's kind of like, well, they're both pretty cute, whatever. But she actually prayed the night before to Diana that A, she wants to remain a virgin, but B, if she can't, that she ends up marrying the one who loves her. All right. Okay. So, um, battle commences. Battle, 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 battle. Um, eventually, Palamoon gets taken out. Not literally, but in the sense of he gets hauled over to home plate, so he yeah. loses. Um, it's a stake, but I don't want to. He's not getting tied to it or anything. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so he, so his side loses, so he lost. So, you know, Mars promised Arasite the victory, and so Arasite won. Um, and then um, that's done. Mars's promise was kept, so now to keep Venus's promise to Palamoon. Um, and I think sort of by extension, Diana's promise to Emily, that if she marries one of them, she marries the one who loves her the most. Or mm-hmm. um, something is... I think Hades, Pluto, I guess. They're all going by their Roman names. Um, sends up like a little demon or something. And Erisite's horse freaks out and falls. And he like hits his head and gets crushed. Oh. So he's dying. <laughs> and he's pretty clearly going to die. And, um, you know, so he won. Mars, Mars let him win. Yeah. But he is not. But Palamon's going to get to marry her. Careful what you wish for. Um, Yes. So, um, yeah, so then uh, Erisite says to Emily, um, please, you know, when I'm dead, marry Palaboon because he's a great guy and yada yada. Anyway, so. (laughs) He'll be good to you. Um, Sure. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he's he's great. He's good. He'll make a great husband. Um, So, yeah, so Erisite dies and Palaboon gets to marry Emily. all right, so this is the knight's tale, right? And the knights in this tale are very clearly not the type of knight that he is, for one thing. They're not working knights. They're not, you know, they're the knightly ideal. Um, and yet there's also this sense in this tale of how um, how much a fantasy this is, mm-hmm. right? This is not real. This is an ideal fantasy. This is not what stuff is like on the ground. Right. This is not what chivalric love is really like. This is not what knights are really like. Um, and the miller <laughs> butts in at the end. Like, he, the knight finishes his tale, but then the miller butts in and is basically like, that is a load of crap. Let me tell you a real story. Um, which he then proceeds to do. He basically tells a satiric upside down version of the story that the knight told. Um, which is very vulgar and excellent and wonderful. Um, but anyway, so, <laughs> right, this is Chaucer, um, writing in the late 1300s. Already, you have people who are satirizing the ideals, right, mm-hmm. and, um, the recognition that the ideals are not like the reality, and all of these things, 
right? Um, so all of that is very, very medieval. Um, okay, but on to Arthur. Yes. <laughs> One of the, so this is sort of this big thing, right? As I said, the extent to which Christianity is deeply invested in, um, well, the way in which chivalry is deeply invested in Christianity, but also Christian sensibilities are deeply, deeply intertwined into chivalry. Mm-hmm. Right. So from everything from the sort of ceremony and ritual when you become a knight to the fantasies about it. Um, and this, of course, is probably the most obvious that you get things like um, Monty Python. Right. It's the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. This is the quintessential King Arthur story is the search for the Holy Grail. Right. The quest, right? Knights go on quests all the time. Questing is a thing that knights should do. But in real life, they go questing for battles. Right. Basically. Like, that's, that's the type of quest. There, are, there aren't other types of quests, really, in real life. Um, but in Arthurian lore, there is the Holy Grail. And um, this is, of course, it's highly symbolic of the fact that knights are kind of supposed to be fighting for Christianity. They're supposed to be going on crusades. Um, so... Are they just going to find it because it is a relic? Like the way they would find the holy spear or the holy, I mean, the holy lance or the holy something else? Or is yes. it like... Uh, holy lance you... also shows up in the Arthurian legend, ah. of course, with the, the Fisher King. Sure. But like, um, are, is it yeah. presumed to have like the magical properties that we see it have in uh, Indiana Jones? Yes. And the Last Crusade. Yeah. yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, Indi- so Indiana Jones, of course, is in that story, the modern knight, mm-hmm. right? I think we mentioned this last time, but he meets the knight Templar, who mm-hmm. says, you're dressed very strangely for a knight, yes. right? Which is such a great line. It's so cheesy, but it's so brilliant. Because, of course, he, he is, like, he is the new knight who has gone questing and realizes, you know, the truth. The search for the grail is the search for truth. I think they actually say this in the freaking movie. I'm probably now just going to be quoting lines from that movie. <laughs> So I apologize. Okay. <laughs> but they say a lot of good stuff. I mean, it's Sean Connery and... Harrison I mean, Ford. Yeah, James Bond and Indiana Jones right. together in a movie. Father and son. Yeah, it's just brilliant. Um, so, yeah. Basically, the search of the grail is the search for truth. That's what it is. Right? It is a metaphor and an allegory and all sorts of other things. Um. And the idea is, right, that Arthur's knights are the best of the best, right? Um, and that they can find this thing, right? That mm-hmm. is um, something that mortals don't get on Earth, right? Um, but one of them will be allowed to have it. The The one that it is shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's originally Percival and then becomes Galahad. Um, and Galahad's uh, version is really even more infused with, I mean, his his version versions are really, really um, set out to be a kind of Christian mysticism. I mean, that that's that's what his quest is teaching us mm-hmm. when we read it. <laughs> um, it's it's been compared very specifically to Cistercian um, mysticism, essentially. Um, and Galahad is, is actually the son of Lancelot and Elaine. Um, you know, consequently, the sort of purity of his birth, it's, it's not a virgin birth, but it's, 
about as close as you can get without, <laughs> you know. So um, wait, who's who's Elaine? Ah, uh, yeah, she's kind of random. Um, the Lady of Shalott, I assume, is Elaine, essentially. If we're to just to bring back this uh, poetry, yeah. I mean, like the Lady of Shalott, if I recall, is a poem about a lady who finally gets up the courage to wave hello to a knight, and then she dies because she was cursed. Well, she can see everything through the mirror. Yeah. And but if she looks at it for real, um, which is again the metaphor, you know, ah, it's like Sleeping Beauty getting her finger pricked <laughs> okay. by the. So yeah. right, it's kind of a metaphor for for losing your virginity. I'd say uh-huh. <laughs> the mirror cracked, but yes, we get the sense that she she sort of dies. But you know, it's a metaphorical. Mm-hmm. I mean, but this is right. So she's this sort of pure young girl uh, who sleeps with Lancelot. Um, and he's like, but I can't stay because I'm in love with someone else, sadly. <laughs> right? <laughs> the story of everyone's oh, like, no. um, yeah. yeah. But she knows that she's supposed to like raise this kid and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so Galahad, and so then when he's raised, like Galahad is sent off to Arthur's court and he can prove who he is. And, um, he sits in the siege perilous. Siege is a seat. Mm-hmm. It's a word for seat. Right. Um, and it's the final seat at the round table that nobody can sit in, literally, like you'll die oh, if you're not the right that's person. That's why it's perilous. And he's, yes, <laughs> yes, okay. exactly. And he sits in it um, and is all good, which proves his worth. Um, and therefore, he, and when he finally does see the Holy Grail, um, he kind of goes into ecstasy and dies, basically. Oh. Or dies pretty quick. Um, and the Grail disappears from the world at that point. Right, mm. so it's kind of bestowed its blessing on Arthur's court and on his knight, and that's that's it. Um, and Percival, in that version, right, Percival's close but no cigar, <laughs> um, and but he dies shortly thereafter. Um, but as I said, there are versions where Percival is the dude instead. Um, but yeah, so we have this sense though of um, it being not just a Christian court, right, but a court that is has the potential for this sort of ultimate blessing from God, right? That you would be shown the truth, what? The truth, mm-hmm. capital T, basically, right? Um, and the Grail, of course, it's a cup, as we know from Indiana Jones' The Last Crusade. Um, theoretically, it's the one, it was the one that was used as a goblet at the Last Supper, which, of course, was a satyr. Uh, and Joseph of Arimathea, like, took it um, and caught Jesus' blood in it during the crucifixion. Ah, yes. The other part yeah, about um, him getting hit, poked with the, the lance. Yes. So wait. Yeah, and then there's the lance. It shows you the Linus. truth, like Christian Christianity truth, the life, the universe, and everything type of truth. More like the truth of God. Okay. Yes. Which, yes, very Christian. Right. Um, And we're talking sort of very much sort of mysticism, right? So um, we are not yet at the point where truth is equivalent to, like, the love of God. Mm-hmm. We're potentially actually more where truth is a type of knowledge of God. Um, which is actually one of the final interesting things about um, something like the Sword in the Stone, right? Where Arthur's a kid, and he's sort of learning, and he's, right, that he is, he's loyal, and he's helpful, and whatever the other Boy Scout stuff is. Improvises well. And this this is why he ends up being able to pull the sword from the stone. Yes. <laughs> um, that knowledge is a really, really important aspect of chivalry, actually. And it's um, one of the things that's sort of a commentary 
chivalric texts themselves look to the past for examples of knights in the past, mm-hmm. right? Before knighthood, of course, existed. Um, but people who are sort of singled out are heroes from the Bible and heroes from mythology, right? Um, so Aeneas, mm-hmm. right, um, is, you know, um, and uh, interestingly, <laughs> um, the Maccabees, uh, Judas Maccabee really? is, is looked at as, as a heroic knight, yeah, of the past. Okay. Um, and, you know, he fought for his faith, and then he was given this blessing of Jelly candles. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And candles. Of oil, I guess we would say. Light. Yes. Yeah. But the symbolism of light, right? Mm-hmm. The light of truth and knowledge. Um, and it's one of the things they say, right? In the past, people had knowledge, and they read books, and they were intelligent. And um, this is something we have to remember is important, mm-hmm. right? That it, knowledge is what gives you um, the ability, essentially, to discern all the things that you're supposed to be able to discern if you're a chivalric knight, and also if you're a Christian knight, and also just if you're a Christian, right? So the, sort of the wisdom of discernment. Um, and so, yeah, the grail really stands for this sort of truth, mm-hmm. basically. Um, it seems yeah. appropriate and so, that Galahad would sort of vanish after seeing it, yes. right? Because, like, in other situations in mythology where a deity has appeared in their true form to a person, it doesn't usually end well for the person. Right. Yeah, you don't get to, like, look on the face of God and live. Right. Yeah. I mean... But you get to have had that moment as a mortal, which is all you can ask for. Yeah. Right? So you... So he dies, like, in a state of perfect bliss, basically. Okay. Yeah. Good enough. Yes. And we are happy for him. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, so... But there's this really interesting way in which chivalry, of course, we have kind of detached it from Christianity, but not exactly, right? And that's why I said the very title of, like, The Once and Future King is a reminder that that is there. Um, Because he is supposed to resurrect, of course. That is the point. Um, But also, anytime you see a knight... Of course, usually they have a cross on their shield, mm-hmm. right? Which, of course, spe- that was specifically what Templars looked like. Not all knights, you know, knights could have whatever other shields. Um, but eventually, and eventually, I mean, much, much later, so early modern period, we get to stuff like Spencer and the Fairy Queen and the, the Red Cross Knight. Um, but that idea, right, that Christianity really is deeply infused into this legend, um, and that, of course, is where certain things come from. Like, obviously, don't commit treason against your lord. That's kind of, that doesn't have to be Christian. That's a pretty big no-no. Right. But adultery, the the importance upon which <laughs> um, adultery is kind of, right, placed amongst treason, that clearly has more to do with the Christian aspects of of the story. Right. Right. Lancelot and Guinevere, like, that is not cool, necessarily. But it wouldn't have to bring down the kingdom, right? Um, and the fact that, yes, Lancelot probably shouldn't be doing this, but that that, um, and neither should Guinevere, obviously, right? Um, but the fact that this is kind of the one, it's the only thing Lancelot does wrong, right? But that is enough to tarnish him beyond probably what we would consider today. Right? So there, there's very much the sense of Christian morality. 
and yeah, the grail is the main thing, but the, yeah, the spear of Longinus absolutely does also show up, Mm -hmm. um, in the legend. And it's really interesting because obviously there is a sense somehow that it's pagan. I think because you have like wizards like Merlin and witches like Morgan Le Fay. Yeah, all that stuff about getting Um, sealed up in an oak tree and like people appearing (laughs) to people, you know, as other people and sort of... And there are, there are magic and there are fairy, Mm -hmm. fey folk, right? All this stuff is absolutely part of these legends as well. Um, But it's sort of the reminder again, right? syncretism like that stuff didn't go away when christianity showed up right right um and so yeah the arthurian stories are deeply deeply infused with this chivalry is deeply infused with christianity um which is why the tournament aspect is so interesting Mm -hmm. because the church was so against it didn't matter like we're gonna keep doing it (laughs) i don't care yes um but yet ostensibly you are supposed to be fighting for Christianity and defending the faith and all these other things, right? Um, so there, so even to the point that the romance really is connected to that. That's why you're not supposed to be sleeping together, right? Right, because you know Christianity is like no, no, <laughs> not unless you're married, right? And you're definitely not because you're probably married to other people because of politics, right? Um, so yeah, so chivalry. Um, this is a side of it that we frequently don't recognize anymore or don't think about in the same way. Um, but yeah, this is, it's deeply infused with, with spiritual elements specifically, of course, Christian elements, but yeah, it's very spiritual. It's very ritualistic. Um, in, yeah, in ways that definitely are not always part of it today, but are very, very, very important to it. Yes. Um, yeah. All right. I feel like that is maybe maybe a good place <laughs> to leave it. What are good things? Yeah, because like these stories, there are. I mean, if you're only familiar with the the sword and the stone piece of it, there's just so much more. Yes. To talk about, yeah. and I think that if we if we keep going, we'll keep going all night. <laughs> unfortunately. Yes. Yes, I do want to give a quick shout out to um, the current comic series. That I think is actually maybe called Once in Future. Is it? Something like that. Um, where there's this sort of imagination that, um, what if Arthur woke back up, but oh. he was evil? What? Okay. Yeah. The idea is that he's, um, gonna chase, you know, all of the interlopers out of England. Okay. Which is basically like everybody oh. <laughs> at this point. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Because, you know, theoretically, he he's theoretically sort of involved with the Romans. He's maybe Celtic, right? Um, which would mean that he's against, I mean, there aren't a lot of Romans left, theoretically, in England. But definitely that he would be against, like, the Saxons and the French, like, everyone who's now considered English, basically. Um, if, if his myth were to be considered Celtic. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's quite fun. It's a fun series. It's cute and fun. You know, it's, um, so, and lots of fun things show up. Beowulf has showed up, you know, yeah. all, all the sort of British legends show up. I want um, to point out that yeah, while the, Googling the quest- this, I also found a YA novel called Once in Future 
uh, re- oh. which is like a sci-fi dystopian book retelling the story of King Arthur with Arthur as a, as a girl. <clears throat> a girl. Oh, that's fun. So. Awesome. We yeah. mean once and future the comic book version. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It's already several. There are already a couple collected volumes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's fun. Um, yeah, it's this. It's a guy and his grandmother. She was a monster hunter back in the day, and she is showing him the ropes. It's quite fun. Oh, nice. You know, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is also, it's, it's a, wh- one of the things I really enjoy about it is the extent to which it's a sort of reminder. Again, right? All of the layers that exist in these stories and all of the layers of interpretation mm-hmm. and that it really depends. You know, everyone reads them differently. And there has always been an awareness of that. Right? Um, now, in reality, Arthur is, as I said, deeply Christian. Right. <laughs> so, um, but this imagines that the stories come to life, not necessarily as they historically were, but as they were historically told, um, which is a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. Because frequently people exist in stories in ways that are different from, you know, um, yeah, so there's this very sort of interesting sense about them. That's just sort of a fun way to reimagine some of the things that we read and what we think about them. Um, and the one with <laughs> Beowulf and Grendel, when they show up, um, it it is a kind of reminder, right? That, of course, that the romance idea, the whole concept of chivalric romance, um, the whole concept of chivalry, this is kind of where we started, um, that People can look like heroes, but you wouldn't necessarily want to meet them in real life, right? And in some ways, that's what Chaucer's knight tells us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just in his existence as a character. Um, There's a difference between the story and the real life. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. And so the comic is a little bit about that. But that's the thing. The original texts also recognize that. Mm -hmm. Right? Lancelot and Guinevere, Tristan Isolde... um, you know, even characters like Morgan Le Fay, who shows up in all sorts of places doing all sorts of things that are interesting. Um, when we talk again about, like, Gowan and the Green Knight, it's really a kind of um, thought experiment, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, it's it's a philosophical take on what, what does this really mean? All right. Why are we doing it? What is the point? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, chivalry. Yes. There's a lot more to it. <laughs> Um, it's deeply Christian. All these stories are. You may not have noticed it, but it's there. It's probably, you know, more obvious if you just sort of think about it and look for it. Um, now that you're thinking about it. Um, cool. Yeah. All right. Thank you for talking to me. And thank you all for listening. You can check us out on the web at askmedievalist.com. We're also on Facebook, on Twitter, you can rate and review us on, what do they call themselves? Apple Podcasts now? Or Pod Chaser? Or I think we're on Spotify and Audible. We're on Audible now. So there's lots of ways to show your love. But the best way is just to tell a friend. Because it turns out word of mouth is really effective for spreading podcasts. Also, uh, it's a good way to spread viruses. So after you tell your friend, wash your hands and keep it medieval. Mask up. Yes.
Hey guys, this is M jumping back in. Um, if you've made it this far and you enjoy my contributions to the podcast, you might be interested in some of my writing. I write things like either dystopian or utopian sci-fi poetry, depending on how you look at it, queer historical romance, urban fantasy set in Madison in the 60s. Some of it will be coming out later this year, I hope, and I've started a newsletter so I can let people know when that happens. If you're interested in receiving those newsletters, go to tinyletter.com slash E-H Lupton. That's L-U-P-T-O-N. And you can sign up. I promise not to monetize you or disseminate you or anything like that. And um, I won't even know if you unsubscribe. So that's tinyletter.com slash E-H Lupton. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.